Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, does democracy die in darkness? We needed to find out where that money was being spent. So that was the impetus for the Oprahs. Oprah is the Open Public Records Act in the state of New Jersey. And this is Anne Mabry. I'm from Newark, New Jersey, which has been my home for the past 30 plus years. And for those same 30 plus years, I've been a professor of English as a second language at a small college in Jersey City. Called NJCU, New Jersey City University. It's a state school. In 2021, Mabry and a few other faculty began to suspect that the university's financial situation was more serious than officials were letting on. We were aware that the president at that time at New Jersey City University was on a kind of spending spree. I mean, it was kind of common knowledge, but we didn't know exactly how the money was being spent. Enter Oprah. Enter Oprah. And I had no idea how to file them. How did you do it? (laughs) I Googled it. As a state school, NJCU is funded by tax dollars, so it's considered a government entity subject to open records laws. We heard there was very, very generous raises given by the president to her her leadership team. So uh, we asked for their salaries from a certain period of time and we got it. We also learned that they used these credit cards when they traveled. There were all kinds of Grubhub charges, a limousine charges, um, Amazon gift charges. Um, and what was the, all this adding up to you? That there was no checks and balances on the way money was being spent. The information Mabry's group uncovered set off a chain reaction that led to leadership changes at the university and intervention by the state legislature. Without the public's ability to request government documents, Mabry doubts any of that would have happened. I don't think that institutions by nature gravitate towards transparency. That's why the Oprah is so, so important. You can go to City Hall and you can speak in all the, all the city council meetings you want, but if you don't have a tool to specifically expose corruption or malfeasance, you have no way to keep government accountable. And if you can't keep government accountable, and we, we don't have a democracy. We take the need for transparency as a given in the United States. Democracy dies in darkness, as the Washington Post tagline goes. Former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis famously said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And our instinct is that more is better. Nothing good happens in secret, right? But America's Constitution was drafted in secret. George Washington ordered the doors locked, curtains drawn, and prohibited the founders from speaking a word of their deliberations to anyone outside the room. The system of democratic governance we revere today is a direct result of that secrecy. So how do we square that? Was it just an historical anomaly? 
Or are there cases where even today, openness can be bad for democracy? I do think there's there's got to be ways to have conversations that are not necessarily on the record. At every level of government in this country, elected officials are grappling with where to draw the line on transparency. If everything you say is going to be made, you know, possibly put on the front page of the paper, you, you are just going to be uh, far more restricted in what you publicly share about what you think about something or potential ideas or solutions. If people can just ask for anything and everything, it creates tremendous costs for the government, money which should be better spent elsewhere. The problem is you got enough bad actors to create problems. When does transparency matter most in a democracy? And what's the right balance? We'll hear a range of perspectives today, including from state lawmakers currently wrestling with these questions. But first, Anne Mabry and the case for openness. NJCU now is probably more transparent because they have to be more transparent. The spending patterns revealed through the records Mabry requested fueled concerns that university officials were downplaying the seriousness of the budget crisis. The faculty held a vote of no confidence in NJCU's president, who later resigned. A state investigation found the university's government-appointed board had failed to properly oversee the finances. In 2023, the New Jersey legislature passed laws to strengthen oversight of spending at state universities. It was gratifying. However, it was, um, how can I say this? It was a bittersweet victory because because what happened is that and on December 14th, we 40 people were retrenched, 40 faculty were retrenched, which is basically you're put on notice that you're, you're being let go. Cost-cutting. Cost-cutting. So I was one of them. Um, Did you feel like it was retaliation for having raised um, the alarm? I can't rule it out. Because my, my retrenchment was walked back. Mabry was allowed to stay on teaching English as a second language, but she ultimately found the proposed cuts to her program untenable. So I retired. But do I regret it? Not, no. I don't regret it at all. Oprah is New Jersey's open records law, but every state has one. Congress kicked off the trend in the 1960s when it passed the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, giving the public the right to request records from federal agencies. States followed suit with laws governing access to state and local records. They have different acronyms like OPRA, PRA, FOIL, or GRAMMA. And they all have different parameters that are constantly being tweaked by state lawmakers and lamented by government offices overwhelmed with public records requests, often from political opponents digging for dirt or private companies looking for business opportunities. I understand all that, but that's an okay price to pay for the benefit of all the other benefits that come with the Open Records Act. If you take away that only tool we have, then, then it's over. Citizens are disarmed completely from being able to get any kind of transparency in, in, in the public institutions. Do you think fundamentally government can't be trusted to do the right thing on its own? No, I don't. I mean, that's a very pessimistic, very dark view. But I just think that public institutions, like I said earlier, they don't naturally gravitate towards transparency. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think they can actually be trusted. Anne Mabry lives in New Jersey. 
Do you trust the government to do the right thing? Only one in six Americans do, according to Pew Research, and that's an historic low since pollsters started asking the question in the 1950s. But the American colonists back in the day could relate, says historian Caitlin Carter. At the heart of a lot of the frustrations that rebelling colonists had were with this claim that the British Parliament uh, represented their best interests. They just feel like there's a lot of backroom maneuvering and they don't like that. So why then did the Founding Fathers turn to secrecy when they got the chance to write a new constitution? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey, Top of Mind listeners, I have another podcast I want to recommend to you. It's from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, and it's called The Appleseed. It's a show filled with stories for you and your family. Each episode features master storytellers sharing all kinds of stories, folk tales, fairy tales, personal and family tales. So it's perfect for road trips, for bedtime, or really anytime you're looking for something that the whole family can enjoy together. And the stories you'll hear will likely get your family sharing their own stories with each other, which is really the best part. It's the payoff. So listen to The Appleseed wherever you get your podcasts. On this podcast, we are careful not to take a side, but you should probably know that when it comes to government transparency— I personally lean pretty strongly in the direction of yes, more please. I'm a journalist. Secrecy always makes me suspicious. Caitlin Carter admits she had a similar bias when she started researching the history of this. I really came into it thinking um, transparency is always the best policy um, and that, you know, the more transparency, the better for democracy. And I was surprised over the course of the project because I wouldn't say I completely changed my mind about that um, at all, but I, I definitely think about it now in a lot more nuanced of a way and, and questioned a lot of the assumptions that I had going in. Carter is a professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. And my book, which just came out with Yale University Press, is called Democracy and Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. And the first thing I noticed was just that how much anxiety you could see at the time about secrecy in government. And that that seemed to be something kind of new in the 18th century at this moment when these revolutions are kind of getting off the ground. And this is true in France, colonial United States or pre-United States and in Great Britain itself. You know, a lot of expression of concern about, well, why are there secrets in the government? And it really gets linked to this idea if government is supposed to be for the people and is going to be by and for the people, then there shouldn't really be a place for secrecy in it, that it really demands transparency. But then we get to the Constitutional Convention after the American Revolution in 1787, and I then found, well, then they met behind closed doors, kind of despite all of this angst about uh, secrecy in the government. And that posed a real puzzle for me. I, I had to start looking at, well, why, why did they do that? And how did they justify that? 
So the Constitutional Convention gathered in Philadelphia over the summer of 1787. There were 55 delegates who made their way there. And almost immediately, they adopted rules to keep their meetings uh, secret and to kind of be bound by an oath of secrecy um, to not convey what was being discussed in the meeting there that summer. Despite it being a very hot, sticky summer in Philadelphia, they met behind closed doors, they closed the curtains, they had guards planted outside. So they're very, very cautious about keeping this um, under wraps. And if you look into some of the letters that these delegates wrote to their friends, colleagues, or constituents kind of explaining why they couldn't give any information, uh, we can start to see some hints of, of maybe why they decided to do that. So what was the justification? And this is of course, like, these are the founding fathers, right? So there was, Ben Franklin was there and George Washington and not Thomas Jefferson. He wasn't there, right? He (laughs) was not there. (laughs) Yeah, Thomas Jefferson was in Paris at the time. And in fact, one of the letters that really gets at some of the thinking of these delegates is written by James Madison to Thomas Jefferson, telling him, I'm so sorry, I can't send you any information (laughs) um, about what we're doing. And in that letter, he says the reason for that is, one, to prevent any confusion or kind of speculation out of doors. So among the general population, And the second, which is what I think is really interesting and important, is he said, uh, meeting in secret is going to allow us to have unbiased discussion here in this meeting. And other delegates wrote similar um, explanations in their letters home. And I think what they meant by that was that they intended to kind of insulate their conversation from outside influence or pressure. So sort of create an environment where they could compromise, change their minds, cut deals, (laughs) and not have to constantly think about or go back to um, their constituents or a broader public and instead focus on the task at hand and do what they felt was the the wisest and best decision that they could make. Did they did they not feel like it was their job to do exactly what their constituents wanted them to do, though? I mean, wouldn't that... Like, if you're trying to keep it under wraps, then to some extent you're saying, I need to be able to make the best deal that I think is the best deal regardless of what the, and I know it's going to make my home, my home folks angry. So I don't want them to know until it's already done. Yeah, absolutely. That seems sort of anathema to the idea of democracy, right? Well, sort of. So in my book, I talk about how there are there are multiple ways of viewing how representatives should work in the best interests of the people. So one view is exactly how you describe, which is that representatives who are working in the name of the people, that they should be reflecting exactly what their constituents want and that they should be going and seeking out that opinion and then using that as the basis to make their decisions. But then you also have another view, um, which is held by someone like James Madison going into the Constitutional Convention, which is that, you know, actually being um, having a representative government can improve on direct democracy because sometimes the people themselves don't even know <laughs> what would be in their best interest or best for them. So as a representative, you've been chosen because you have a broader view you are educated, all of these things. And then you come as representatives together and there is where you have the widest view. You have a calm deliberation and you can come to the best and wisest decisions um, in the common good. So they're really acting under that kind of vision of what representative government should look like. Yeah. Was this a unanimous idea that that is what it means that... um 
I mean, because it is what we have today in America, which is to a large extent, the say that we get as the people is when we vote for somebody. And we can write letters and make phone calls. But at the end of the day, it's that member of Congress who's pushing the button one way or the other. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think that these two visions for how a representative should function in order to represent the best interest of the people, they still exist and they're still in tension. Hmm. You know, I think that a lot of, um, when I talk to my students about this, you know, a lot of students are like, well, we do expect our representatives to do what we want them to do. Um, You know, and that's why we have things like public opinion polling. You know, we, we want them to follow these things. And then, you know, as you say, practically speaking, there's actually a lot of room for an elected official to, um, you know, sometimes what they even tell each other in hard votes, vote their conscience, right. you know, um, and not have to constantly go back and like poll your district on every single issue, um, partly because that's impractical, but also it is related to this theory of how the best decisions would actually get made in the interest of the people. So with the Constitutional Convention then, um, was this something that the public was upset about, that their founders were crafting a new constitution behind completely closed doors, no leaks allowed? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because while the meetings are happening, we really don't know how the public felt about it because for the most part, the public didn't really know what was happening. (laughs) So in that sense, it it really had an effect. I mean, there's some newspapers over the summer that are reporting that a meeting is happening um, and noting that it is in secret. Some of those papers note that uh, basically to say, oh, that must mean it's very important and kind of move on. Mm -hmm. Other newspapers noted and with some concern, kind of wondering with a little bit of suspicion what's actually happening. But for the most part, there aren't that many leaks at all through the summer and there's not a lot of discussion about it. So it's really once the, the Constitution gets published for the public to actually look at then you see a, a big swell of criticism for them having met behind closed doors. And that really becomes very strong as the anti-federalist uh, movement sort of begins against the Constitution and, and going into the ratification debate. Did all of that secrecy lead to any benefits that we can say? Like, was, do you, I mean, is it possible that the founders would not have been able to agree on a constitution? without the ability to sort of not be held accountable in the moment by the people outside the room? Uh, James Madison certainly thought so. Uh, Later in his life, he actually wrote that he thinks there would have been no constitution had they not met in secret. And I think, you know, we could debate that, but I, I, I often ask my students today, you know, can you imagine if there was a new constitutional convention held today and it was held behind closed doors? And, you know, everyone says, no, I can't even imagine that would be completely rejected by people as illegitimate. But then at the same time, they say, but if there were open doors, I don't see how they would get anything done. I don't see how they would accomplish anything. And I do think there's a sense at the time um, that 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 is also probably true. So uh, yeah, so I do think it facilitated a lot of the kind of compromises and deal cutting that was maybe necessary in order to produce a document that then got ratified. Did the fact that it was all done in secret also give some cover to founders who were basically endorsing a constitution that 
endorsed chattel slavery, that did not enfranchise women or people of color, you know, sort of only represented a tiny fraction of the actual American people. Yes, definitely. So you see that secrecy really did facilitate those kind of compromises. Um, And again, you can see that if it hadn't been in secret, maybe those compromises couldn't have been reached or come to. And one of the ways we might think about that is that we can see that then when these delegates go back to their states after they leave Philadelphia and they go into these ratifying conventions, a lot of times they are saying very contradictory things uh, based on the state that they're going back to about uh, why certain decisions were reached or about the intent behind certain clauses or what they actually mean. And it allows for, you know, debate about this to go on down to this day. I mean, historians disagree on whether the Constitution sanctioned uh, versus merely tolerating slavery. And a lot of that goes back to the root of we don't have a lot of detailed information about what they actually said inside the room. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It it made it very hard to kind of pin anything down. And what I talk about in the book is is about how that was by design. The framers, uh, you know, they were very conscious that they were doing it that way. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I guess I was sort of disappointed, if I can say that, to, to, to see how one of the biggest champions of of the secrecy is, you know, our revered George Washington, who we sure. sort of hold up as this like idealized leader yeah. and champion of democracy. And it wasn't just in the Constitutional Convention. Like he actually tried to keep a lot of things secret even during his presidency, right? What was his yes, motivation? Yeah. yeah, I mean, George Washington uh, really does adhere to this vision of a more insulated style of political representation where the aim is that, okay, the people have a voice in selecting their government and that voice is expressed when they elect their leaders. And once those leaders are elected, it's up to them to make the best policies that they can in the name of the people. And that those policies are not always the most popular policies. And in that kind of case, secrecy can be useful to give them that space um, to go with what they believe is the best policy, even if it's not popular. So, yeah, George Washington very much adhered to that view. And even especially when he was in office as president, he deployed secrecy quite frequently to kind of expand the realm of executive authority, especially in the realm of foreign relations, but also to advance policies that sometimes were unpopular. Mm. Meanwhile, in France, dot, 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 a cautionary tale is playing out, (laughs) as you describe in your book, Professor Carter. Um, Tell us what's going on there and how secrecy played into it. Yeah, so France, uh, we we can think of it, as you say, as a cautionary tale, maybe in two ways. So one is kind of something that even early Americans were noticing at the time, and that is when the French Revolution broke out and you have deputies to this states general meeting in Versailles to determine, you know, the future of the French um, state and to start to write a constitution, they are very dedicated to transparency. They maintain open doors through all of their meetings. They let reporters in 
inside. They allow, um, you know, people with petitions to come directly into their meeting and present them you know, at the speaker's bar. They're very, very committed to this. And then it counterintuitively leads to some tensions because often you have um, people coming and saying, wait a minute, we don't agree with that. <laughs> That's not what we want you to do. And so then you kind of have this calling into question of, well, how representative is this institution if it doesn't seem to be acting you know, in accord with public opinion? And so these tensions are really bubbling up there and it's really undermining the legitimacy of this new representative body as it's trying to get off the ground. Yeah. So counterintuitively, ironically, perhaps even tragically, um, trying to be fully transparent can actually undermine public trust and trust is what a representative democracy requires because we all can't represent ourselves. Like we have to trust this person we elected to go do for us what's going to be in our best interest. So yes, yeah. I mean, it leads to a lot of instability. And so the first constitution that they uh, draft and put into place, it just doesn't last very long. And then you see the rise of the, the period known as the terror. What I show in my book, though, is that the terror represents a cautionary tale maybe in a different way that early Americans weren't so aware of. We tend to continue to kind of blame that on transparency, but in fact, the Jacobins, the faction that kind of led the government during this period, once they came into power, they actually started to reintroduce a lot of secrecy into government. And they started to actually theorize a very insulated style of representation. It was actually kind of in line with what George Washington and his Federalist counterparts had in mind in the United States. Now, the Jacobins really took that to an extreme. And so they represent there a cautionary tale of the potential for, you know, the use of secrecy to really turn to an extreme um, and and lead to, to violence. Yeah. What do you think we as voters and citizens should be thinking about and weighing when we're considering how much transparency we want from our governments? Yeah. Um, Well, I think here the history is actually really important, uh, which is why I study and teach history and and why I wrote this book. But over the course of the book, so I followed like James Madison, for example, he changed his mind about these questions. As he began to serve in Congress, he started to see some of the potential downsides of secrecy and a more insulated style of representation. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that transparency, more transparency and this reflective style of representation, though imperfect, he thought that those were the best solutions for self-government, that actually that was probably the best way. I think we start from that premise today, and for good reason. When secrecy is used, there is always a potential for it to be abused, I think, essentially. But if we forget the history, I think we risk losing sight of some of the potential utility or benefits of secrecy used selectively and carefully in representative government. And sometimes the most just or the wisest policy is not the most popular policy, which is to say that sometimes reforms that may be needed are reached uh, through not democratic (laughs) means and that that is just a reality and that's 
okay. And in those cases, secrecy can be useful. And so it's kind of, you know, there are, there are potentials for extremes and kind of danger on both sides of that spectrum. And I think it is, it's about finding that, that happy medium, which is so challenging to do. Caitlin Carter is a professor of history at Notre Dame and author of Democracy in Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. Professor Carter, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This is great. Government officials are grappling with that happy medium all the time. You won't find a politician in this country who will say they are against transparency, but there is a wide variation in where they draw the line. To get a taste of that range, we'll next hear from lawmakers in three different states with different ideas about the ideal level of openness in American democracy. And they're all Republicans because we wanted to emphasize that this is not a partisan issue. In some states right now, Democrats are leading efforts to restrict access to records and meetings. In other states, it's Republicans. Typically, it's whichever political party is in power. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Okay, Top of Mind listeners, before we get right back to today's episode, I would like to introduce you to another gem of a show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. It's In Good Faith. It's hosted by Stephen Cap Perry. And on each episode, he interviews members of different religions and spiritualities to better understand their relationship with the divine. Whether you wish to strengthen your own relationship or just listen to thoughtful conversations about religion— Dive into an enriching world of spiritual exploration with Stephen Cat Perry on In Good Faith. Listen anywhere you get podcasts. My name is Bart Hester. I'm an Arkansas state senator. I'm actually the uh, president of the Senate, President Pro Tem right now. And I've been um, in the Arkansas state Senate for 11 years. Republicans control the Arkansas legislature and the state's governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is also a Republican. But when she asked the legislature to implement some limits to Arkansas's FOIA laws during a special session in 2023... There was significant pushback at the Capitol. Right away, it was clear that the plan was in trouble. Senator Hester wasn't surprised to see people rallying against the changes, but the opposition was unusually bipartisan. Sometimes it's interesting how we can get so far apart we start to come back together. So some of our... uh, you know, more liberal people and more conservative groups were working together on, on that issue. Uh, but look, I, I think it's great. I mean, when I sit back and watch this process, it's beautiful. And and their work and their input on the issue changed the direction we were going. The original bill would have made emails and texts between officials at state agencies, boards, and commissions off limits to public request. Same for documents prepared by attorneys representing a state official or agency. But there wasn't enough support from Republicans or Democrats to move those forward. So ultimately, Arkansas lawmakers passed a narrower set of exemptions related to security plans for special events and the governor's whereabouts. We've had uh, public events coming up where there were going to be tens of thousands of people attending. And different constituents would would FOIA Freedom of Information and ask for security detail plans. They asked as specifically as... What are the active shooter plans? Are there snipers? Where are they located? Things, things that just aren't rational and reasonable for somebody to be asking. Uh, and I think that most people would agree that those are just things that should be remained uh, private. 
Senator Hester's still hoping to see additional restrictions to the state's freedom of information laws to exempt legal strategy from public disclosure during a lawsuit. Like if we're the state of Arkansas is getting sued, we should not have to give uh, the people suing us our plans for court. He was in a car when we spoke, and right then it started raining. Now, I'd be willing to concede to say that it's not available until maybe uh, 60 days after a ruling or once the appeals processes are up. Uh, and, and then that stuff will be public. But I think the general population would agree that if we're being sued, we should be able to keep our strategies uh, private. Well, we know that we have to be uh public and transparent, right? Democracies don't work without transparency, but we have to know what our elected officials are doing. And, you know, the pendulum can always swing too far. On that note, Senator Hester supports limiting the burden that public records requests can place on state agencies, local governments, and school districts. We have people that that weaponize the FOIA system. And I say by weaponizing, meaning make multiple freedom of requ- uh, information requests a day or a week, uh, where our public schools in Arkansas or having to have full-time employees sometimes just responding to one person's constant request. That employee has to pull that information. Then they have to go have legal look at it and see what has to be redacted. And so we can have one citizen weaponizing the system, uh, dominating the school because they're frustrated with them for some reason. And so that's why my thinking was, you know, uh, could we have a system that people think is still reasonable that maybe somebody can uh, have one request per week? Or maybe the school's not having to deal with more than five requests at a time. The school or the state or whoever. So there's, they're constantly being open and transparent. Nothing is more um, hidden than it was uh, before it still is transparent. But it's a more reasonable method for people to get that and also government to still function as the majority of citizens uh, think that it should. Several states over, Republican lawmakers with a slim majority in the Arizona legislature recently took a different approach to limiting records requests. Uh, Well, I tried to impose some sort of fee. This is Arizona State Senator John Kavanaugh. Most of the bills that I've addressed, uh, where I addressed these transparency issues, uh, public records, open meetings, actually were triggered by outrageous abuses of the processes. Uh, And the latest one was with the police video tapes. In 2023, Senator Kavanaugh ran a measure allowing police departments to charge up to $46 an hour to review body camera video in response to public records requests. The law got bipartisan support and was signed by Arizona's Democratic governor. There are people who request that footage for legitimate reasons, right? And there are also people who, who who do fishing expeditions, or it's a legitimate reason, but they ask for too much footage. And by too much footage, I'm not saying they won't only, they shouldn't see the whole incident, but violent issues, somebody hold up with a gun or something, you may have 20 cops there. They all have cameras. And rather than ask for, a, you know, a couple of camera shots, they'll ask for the video footage of every police officer at the scene. Now, it takes a tremendous amount of work to redact both written documents and video documents because the law says that there are a number of things that that have to be omitted. Certain personal information about witnesses or informants. There are certain faces like victims that have to be blurred. There are certain locations that have to be blurred. So it's really expensive to uh, to engage in that type of redacting. And if people can just ask for anything and everything, uh, it creates tremendous costs for the government, money which can be better spent elsewhere. 
Uh, and it also creates massive delays in people getting legitimate documents because the backlog becomes massive where there's a six or 12 month delay uh, on the more routine stuff. So that's the reason why uh, there needs to be disincentives to, uh, to oh, by, oh, by the way, one other way that they make it difficult is they go way back in time uh, and they'll use general terms, uh, creating ridiculous you know, search parameters and, and time constraints. Um, on the whole, do you think public record requests are mainly legitimate or mainly not? I think they're mainly legitimate. Sure, there's a, but the, but the problem is you got enough bad actors to create problems that create massive delays and massive government expense. Who are the bad actors? Well, some of them are malicious. Some of them have grudges against the government. Uh, a lot of them are um, kind of self-appointed uh, watchdogs, but they get a little carried away, uh, you know, when they start to ask for everything. You know, what you may think is frivolous may not be what someone else thinks is frivolous. It, 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 it can be subjective to a certain point. Peter Abarno is another Republican state lawmaker. I live in Centralia, Washington. I represent the 20th Legislative District, which is uh, from Olympia, Washington, which is the capital, all the way down to Vancouver, Washington, which is just north of Portland. Rather than restrict requests or charge fees, Representative Abarno thinks states should default toward openness and focus on improving the process to resolve disputes between people who request records and the government agencies that deny them. Right now, the state of Washington, if I ask uh, a state agency for a document and they say you're not eligible for it, my only remedy is to sue them in superior court and just start the process, which is expensive. I think there's got to be a better way to access your government and access information than to just get a no and have to file a lawsuit. You shouldn't have to hire a lawyer to navigate the Public Records Act. You should be able to ask for it. And if, if there's a legitimate dispute, find an effective and efficient way to resolve it, not just file a lawsuit. He'd like to see an independent agency, like an ombuds office, set up to do that. In a nonpartisan way, in a way that hopefully the public will trust, both sides would trust, to help mediate this issue. Uh, Pennsylvania actually has one of these offices, and I actually modeled it and referenced it in my bill as one example of maybe we should look at, would this be more effective, efficient, and save money for both the municipality, the government, the agency, and the person trying to get the records. But what is clear is that the way we're doing it now, this is not the way to do it. You know, in, uh, it's actually the 50th year anniversary of the Public Records Act here in the state of Washington. And when it was first passed by the people through initiative process, the people said, we want transparency. There were 12 exemptions in 1972 when it first passed. Now there's over 500 exemptions. The exceptions are now eating the rule. I think there's always a balance. You want, you want to know how the sausage is being made, but you also want to make sure that, for instance, when a constituent calls me or contacts me, that some of their private information is protected. You also want to make sure that when you're talking about economic development, that you're also keeping some of the inner dealings of that private, because if you talk about, for instance, land acquisition, you could all automatically um, not only kill a land deal, but sway that, that real estate market in and around that community. So there are certain things I, I think you want to make sure that there's a timing element of when you disclose it. But even, even after the fact, I think the public has a right to know how you got to that decision making. You know, there's a lot of distrust in government from Maine to California. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that people don't know how their government works. 
a lot of people are really disappointed that that we're not uh, collaborating more. We're not open more about how we're getting to these decision points. And, and I, I'm hoping my bill helps with that a little bit. And are, so are you comfortable with the idea that your communication with your colleagues in the House and the Senate would be made public at some point? Um, how much of the getting to the deal do you think needs the public needs to be able to have access to? Well, anything you put in writing, uh, if you're doing it for the public good, is, is, is a public document. Um, now, there are a number of different um, conversations I have telephonically that are not disclosed because there's nobody taking notes on them. Because I do think there's there's got to be ways to have conversations that are not necessarily on the record. But I, I think the public should have a right to, to say, look, I, I looked up uh, Representative Obarno's record on early learning. I know he reached out to this ranking member and this chairman, and they got together and they were moving this policy forward. I you know, I, I don't put anything in writing that I'm not expecting to be in the newspaper. I I take that seriously. And I, I think the voters and constituents in my community um, should hold me to that to that level. I mean, there's always going to be a mistake. People are always going to, you know, make, you know, a faux pas here or there and make a mistake. But ultimately, the the default should be openness. This is a topic of much debate among elected officials. Washington's state legislature, where Representative Abarno serves, is controlled by Democrats who have tried unsuccessfully for years to get their emails and texts exempted from the state's Public Records Act. And they point to Congress, where emails and texts sent by members of the House and Senate are not subject to FOIA. Many states have similar exemptions, like Arkansas, for example, where Republican Senate President Bart Hester says it's critical that lawmakers be able to communicate privately. We say there's no stupid questions or there are no stupid thoughts. Well, uh, the court of public opinion disagrees with that, right? And if and if everything you say is going to be made, you know, possibly put on the front page of the paper, you, you are just going to be uh, far more restricted in what you publicly share about what you think about something or potential ideas or solutions. Um, and so I, I think we, it just, uh, it hinders the process to know that everything's going to be public. I think every decision that is made should absolutely be public. Um, but how you arrived at that decision with the conversations with your colleagues or who you're working for. I think those are reasonable that we, those aren't always public on how we did it, but every action that you take should absolutely be public. Now, if we step back from the minutiae that dominate much of the debate over public records and meetings laws, the vast majority of governing in this country does take place out in the open. Congressional or legislative emails may not always be public record, but roll call voting makes it easy to see exactly how politicians vote. Virtually every committee meeting or floor debate on an issue, from your local school board to the United States Congress, is televised or live streamed, especially since the pandemic. And that has consequences of its own, says Stanford political science professor Bruce Kane. Once you take a stand in public, it's very hard to say, oh, you know what, you know, that business about cutting taxes, ah. Never mind. Yeah. We'll make a compromise. Kane wrote a book several years ago called Democracy More or Less, highlighting the potential for transparency to drive gridlock. This is the problem. Uh, not that you, uh, you know, I want to be an advocate for people going into the back room, and, you know, smoking cigars and cutting deals and not telling the public. But, you know, at some point, 
if you can't back down, it's not just that people can monitor you, but then the groups threaten you by not giving you campaign funds, right? And then all of a sudden you're stuck not doing the business of compromise, which is absolutely essential the way we set up the American political system. The, the reality is that you've got to make some compromises or you won't get big change done. So if we undercut our capacity to uh, back down and say, okay, well, you know, I really would prefer X, but I will take X minus delta, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, as the compromise. If we can't do that, we're in big trouble as a country. And I don't want to say that polarization is totally due to transparency. Mm -hmm. I think it's just another piece of the puzzle that locks us in. You know, allowing people to negotiate a little bit more in the quiet would be a good thing, but demand that they also have the public meetings and make statements. Bruce Kane says our American tendency to place almost blind faith in transparency's power to make government work for us is actually based on flawed logic. So the fundamental problem is that it assumes that your average citizen will pay attention to all these different venues in which they can have influence and then show up on a regular basis so that you'll always have a representative selection of people at these meetings. But instead, what you get is selection bias, okay? Um, most people do not go to city council hearings. Very few people will go to regulatory hearings. And there are thousands of these hearings every year, millions actually, if you cross uh, all the different cities and counties and jurisdictions. So the reality is the people that show up at these meetings, the people that monitor what the government's doing, are often uh, interest groups and specialists that have the resources to do that or that have the motivation because they can gain something by paying attention to this, right? Take public records requests. In a world where transparency holds government perfectly accountable to the greater good, you'd see requests made for every issue that might affect the public. But when Kane and his colleagues studied public requests made to federal agencies... What we discovered was that most of the requests came in two varieties. Uh, one was that people do request information about themselves, okay? So they want to know what's happening to their veterans' benefits or what's happening to their request for citizenship, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But the mo by far, the most of the requests come from organized groups that are looking to find out what the government's about to do to them or, you know, what possible regulatory barrier they have to face, uh, or their opposition researchers trying to figure out something about the other side. For political gains. For political gain, exactly, okay. Julie. And the press is obviously the other uh, constituent that make the, FO, uh, the FOIA requests and show up at the hearings of the press. Unfortunately, as you know, <laughs> the market for the press has been uh, somewhat, especially local newspapers and local stations, uh, they still thrive, but it's much harder environment to make money. And there's a lot more competition from social media that doesn't do, doesn't have the norms of verification that the press have. So you, you're not sure what kind of information you're getting from them. And, um, and so what, Professor Kane? is that bad for democracy if, if, if it's not a really representative group that is taking advantage of all of this transparency? Is it bad that these people are doing the monitoring? No. Is it bad that it may be an unrepresentative group of people that are able to do that? Yes. Okay. okay. Because it all comes down to well-resourced people, better educated people, people that don't have linguistic uh, difficulties, 
uh, there are a number of things that will prevent people from being able to have these kinds of advocates out there looking out for their interests, right? And so now that's been remedied to some degree by the rise of the nonprofit sector, which, uh, you know, uh, so you have groups that look out for environmental interests or environmental justice interests or, uh, you know, disadvantaged people in various ways. But even though there's been a rise in the number of these groups, um, the ratio of groups advocating for businesses, for wealthy neighborhoods, wealthy people to groups that are doing this for the larger population, either average or below average in, um, in education and resources. That ratio hasn't changed. It's just that the number of these groups of both types have increased over time. So the, so the private so, interests far outweigh or outnumber. Yeah, exactly. And so if we were looking to revise even in just a small way um, to make tra- transparency work better for us, that decisions are made in the, in the best interest of as many people as possible in America, um, what, what could we possibly do? I think what you want to do is make the fight as fair as possible, either through... Uh, a, a more robust nonprofit sector, uh, or you know, with with more tax incentives for uh, nonprofit groups that work with um, you know people that aren't as well resourced, or maybe almost like a public defender's model of lobbyists. You know, where you say, okay, if a group uh, qualifies uh, in terms of the resources, um, you know, that they can get. Uh, you know, a, a public defender to just show up and give the other side of the mm. case, you know. Public defense lobbyists, that's interesting. So the instinct is rather than to sort of restrict transparency, we we need to increase the kinds of people who are taking advantage of it. Yeah, exactly. Let, uh, sort of make it an evener fight. And I think we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but I think what we can do is try to make sure that there aren't any missing gaps. Do you have any advice or recommendation for the, the, the general citizen in this country? What can we focus on to, to try to make sure transparency is working best for us? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the hard thing. I, 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 that's why I think there has to be, you know, help from the journalists and help from the nonprofits. Yeah. So I think the average citizen is not as empowered as uh, people in the media and the nonprofit sector. And I think we have to put an end to vilifying the media. <laughs> that doesn't help democracy at all. Uh, sure, sometimes people screw up, but, uh, you know, let's, come on, we need it. Um, so, I, you know, the other thing is, and I think this goes to K-12 through education, is we really have to start thinking much more seriously about our civics education. Instead of having people memorize dates and names, we should be working on the practices of democracy and trying to teach people to sort through this competing information and distorted information, particularly from social media. I see the kids are actually, with each generation, more sophisticated about uh, realizing that there's a lot of nonsense out there. Uh, and I think a lot of the people that are getting duped these days are, tend to be us older people <laughs> who didn't grow up with social media and think that if they see something in print, they should believe it. Whereas I see an inherent cynicism and in people that have been looking at, uh, you know, social media since they were five. <laughs> so I think some of it is self-correcting, but we could do a lot more, I think, on uh, teaching 
practices. And that became unsexy because it's not the sort of thing that you can do an AP test on or, you know, or people can, has the kind of intellectual merit of doing physics. But uh, unfortunately, if people don't know how to practice democracy, how to stand up for themselves, uh, the government only gets more complicated every year. There's more agencies. And so learning how to be a citizen is no trivial matter or an effective citizen anyway. Because it's not just about voting once a year. Exactly. Professor Kane, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Sure. Bruce Kane is a professor of political science at Stanford. He's director of the Bill Lance Center for the American West and author of Democracy More or Less, America's Political Reform Quandary. You know, when we get to the end of an episode like this one, and the takeaway is basically, well, there are pros and cons to secrecy. It all depends on the context and how you implement it. I feel kind of frustrated. <laughs> I like bright lines. Ambiguity bugs me. And we're always talking here on Top of Mind about exploring perspectives so we can get greater clarity, right? Well, if you felt something similar, I just want to share what I've learned recently from some research out of Columbia's Difficult Conversations Lab. They pair strangers with opposite views on hot-button topics, and they watch how their conversations go. And one of the big findings is that people are better at having difficult conversations if they're okay feeling conflicted, if they find inconsistencies in the other person's position intriguing rather than upsetting. They're fine with some ambiguity in their own position and the other person's too. And that same skill makes someone less likely to fall into the polarization trap where everything's black and white. I'm 100% right. You are 100% wrong. So when we do the work to dig deep on an issue to stick with the discomfort of hearing things that challenge our worldview. And the end result is just realizing that the issue is way more complicated than we thought. That is a win in and of itself. I'm trying to keep that in mind. And I'd love to hear what challenged you about this or any other Top of Mind episode. When you end up feeling less sure about your position after listening to new perspectives, what do you do? Reach us at topofmind at byu.edu or find us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me and Amber Mortensen with help from Samuel Benson, James Hoops, and Sam Payne. We had sound design by Kelsey Ney, Brandon Lewis, and Trent Reimschussel. Would you do us a favor and rate and review Top of Mind on the podcast app you're using right now? That'll help other listeners find Top of Mind and join us in becoming better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>